Brick Moon Fiction presents Do No Harm by Chantelle Donnan Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle There's a sound echoing through the rainbow-painted halls of Sunnyside Preschool, so loud you can even hear it in the parking lot. Someone is crying. No. Shrieking. Throaty wails of despair and apoplexy mingle into a horrible discord that makes everyone within earshot flinch. As I pull into an open parking space, the sound pierces my ears like feedback from a microphone. I kill the engine and lean against my headrest, listening to the sound ebb and flow as cringing families pass through the front doors. I sigh. This is one cry I know all too well. Clara. My daughter. Her tantrum hasn't let up by the time I reach her classroom. While other children are gathering their belongings from neon-lined cubbies, emailing their art projects home from massive wall-mounted screens, or staring at the arriving parents like Dickensian orphans, Clara is in the far corner having an absolute meltdown. I spot her from the window. She's flung herself over a clear plastic toy chest and is beating on its lid with her tiny pink fists. Snot and spit ooze out of her crumpled face, and her cries are a blend of despondent wailing and dictatorial commands. Give him back now, she roars as one of the teachers enters her orbit. The teacher, a waifish woman with a halo of burgundy spiral curls, stoops down to Clara's level and says something I can't hear. When Clara responds with another window-rattling cry, the woman throws up her hands and turns to the cluster of parents at the door. Oh, thank God, Mr. O'Connell, she says, making a beeline towards me. It's Dr. O'Connell, I say. What was that? She didn't hear me, or more likely, she didn't care. Nothing. How are you doing, Mrs. Forster? Good, good. So glad to see you. Uh, as you can see, we're having a little trouble with Clara today. With a deft hand, she unlatches the safety gate at the threshold and ushers me into the room. Perhaps you can calm her down? Before she can say anything else, I'm maneuvering between half-sized desks and indoor jungle gyms, making my way towards my little banshee in the corner. She's still screaming when I reach her, but she stops when I kneel beside the box. Hey, Claire Bear, I say. What are you doing, sweetheart? She looks up at me, peering with bloodshot eyes through strands of long brown hair that have fallen into her face. She flashes a plastered-on, brave-faced smile, but her shallow breathing gives her grief away. Hi, Daddy, she says. Her voice is hoarse and thin after all the yelling. She wipes her eyes with the back of her hand, then points into the chest. They've got Billy. I follow her finger and look into the plastic lid of the toy chest. Sure enough, her green teddy bear is there, smushed into the corner between a handful of blocks and a pointed princess hat. His snout is pushed against the plastic at an off-kilter angle, and his beady black eyes are looking up toward the lid, pleading for freedom. Can we get him out? Clara climbs down from the box and wraps her arms around my neck. Please? Sure we can. Just give me a minute, honey. As I stand, Clara's teacher smiles and flits over to me. I knew you could do it, she says. Father's love gets him every time, right? She smiles broadly and lightly punches my arm. Guess so, I say. Looks like I've solved the problem, too. Clara's bear's been packed away. I gesture into the toy box. Oh, well, would you look at that? She leans in towards me and continues in a hushed tone. We discovered after snack time today that a few of our students are out sick. Measles, it turns out. 
We figured it's best to quarantine all the toys until we can have them sanitized. My TA was grabbing everything in sight, and I guess Clara's bear got gathered with the rest. Honest mistake, I say. Not a problem. Could you just... I click my tongue and make an unlocking motion with my hand. Unlock it so we can head out? Honestly, we'd rather not, Mrs. Forrester says. It's just that, with measles being so contagious and all, we'd like to clean everything thoroughly. And I'm sure Clara shared her bear with one of the other students, so it's fine, I say. She's been vaccinated. As soon as the word is out of my mouth, I know it was a mistake. Miss Forrester gasps, pulling a hand to her chest. The mothers in the room whip their heads around, staring at me with wide eyes and perfect O's for mouths. I can feel my neck and ears growing hot. Look, she'll be fine, I say again, leaning closer to Miss Forrester and murmuring into her hair. If you could just give her the bear, it won't be a problem. I'll sanitize it at home. Mr. O'Connell, I just can't. She steps backward, shaking her head slowly. You have to understand, we are trying to do what's best for our students. And I do understand that. Really, I do. But I'm trying to do what's best for my daughter. And for me, I think. The less she cries, the better. Look, I just don't know if I can give you the bear in good conscience, Miss Forrester says with an emphatic tug on her navy cardigan. We have to be sure it gets clean properly. The last thing we'd want is little Clara exposed to anything else. She draws out the last word, dropping her chin and glancing up at me as if I should feel ashamed of myself. It's an effective look. My stomach churns and somersaults guiltily despite my better judgment. I take a few deep breaths before speaking again. What are you implying, ma'am? Nothing, she pulls her hands to her cheeks in surrender. I would never tell someone how to parent... And obviously, you're more comfortable living a more risky, chemical-laden life than some. I'm just doing my part to make sure she, she points at Clara, who is kneeling beside the toy box and feverishly trying to pry open the lid, doesn't get sick because of your opinions. Opinions. I take a step forward. The heat in my face isn't shame anymore. You think I vaccinated my daughter based on an opinion. Mr. O'Connell, I really don't want to talk about doctor, I spit. I am not a mister, ma'am. I am a doctor. God damn it, I hate saying that. I used to mock those guys. Those impotent, needy guys who had to point out their titles to feel important. But these days, I find myself being that guy too often to count. Mm-hmm. Miss Forster nods, her lips pressed into a thin sneer. I'm just saying you ought to know better than to fill your daughter's body with something so... She shakes her head again and waves her right hand as if she's trying to erase me from her field of view. Particularly after everything with your wife? I mean, the mental ramifications? That's enough. I reach back and grab Clara's hand, pulling her to my side. Just open the fucking toy box. I am never gonna let you go. Never, ever, never, ever, never. Clara is seated in her car seat, smashing Rocky Road ice cream against Billy Bear's snout before sticking the spoon in her mouth. Mmm, she hums with every bite. Thank you for the ice cream, Daddy. Of course, sweetheart. As we pull into the driveway, my cell phone starts to flash with one notification after another. My latest paper, a study of the MMR vaccine and its potential benefits and side effects in children under six, just went live. As per usual, my inbox is exploding. Emails calling me a baby poisoner, a puppet for Big Pharma, a horrible father who deserves to lose his darling daughter, either through disease or a well-placed call to CPS, 
Occasionally, there is a nice message, usually from families living in VFO, vaccinated family-only communities, luxury high-rises and gated neighborhoods where only the vaccinated can gain entry, encouraging me to give up on the masses and join them. They're building new homes every day, they tell me, with two bedrooms starting at just 600K. I glance up at Clara for a brief moment. She doesn't notice me, fully engaged with cleaning her bear's plastic nose with a napkin. Would it be better if we moved? Give up my public education crusade, find a VFO in our price range, isolate ourselves from all the disease? We're not really at risk out here, not physically, but this life can be a painful one. Clara has watched her friends get frail, get sick, and drop out of her life by the dozens every year. She watched the person she loved the most fight a losing battle against the public until she was beaten down and broken, until she lost the battle with herself. A tragedy more than a few talking heads chalked up to the mercury in those needles. Maybe we would be better off away from the pain, the ignorance. No. I shake my head to banish the thought. If we leave, my wife's work will be for nothing. Her death will be for nothing. No. I'll keep pushing on. I delete the messages from my inbox one by one, methodically, rhythmically, barely skimming what they have to say. But one message breaks my rhythm. It opens with Dr. O'Connell, a greeting I hardly ever see these days. With my cursor hovered over the delete button, I read, I had the pleasure to read your latest paper on the MMR vaccine in the New England Medical Review. I was particularly taken with your closing arguments. These researchers implore the public to draw wisdom from their forefathers to help eradicate the diseases that are an unnecessary scourge on societies the world over. I smile as I read the sentence again. I'd been particularly happy with that line. A bit flowery for my taste, the message continues, but I agree with your point fully. In fact, I am currently forming a consortium of like-minded individuals in the hopes that we might address the vaccine problems facing our various countries more completely. We are planning a meeting in Boston on the 3rd, and, as I've discovered, Boston is your hometown. If you could join us, we would be most appreciative. I believe you could be a tremendous asset to our team. It's signed... Dr. Margot Roussel, Université Paris-Descartes. My heart skips a beat. Finally, after all this time fighting public opinion, there's someone else, a team, ready and willing to fight at my side. I check my calendar. The third is tomorrow. Quickly, I fire off a message. Dr. Roussel, thrilled to hear your message. Would love to meet your team. Please forward time and place ASAP, Dr. James O'Connell. I press send and the message disappears rocketing through space to reach my new partners. As I unbuckle Clara and watch her scramble into the house, I can't help but smile, lost in a dream of the new world we could create for her. The next morning, I drop Clara off with a babysitter and weave through rush-hour traffic to Boston University. Dr. Roussel and a colleague are leading a guest lecture on vaccinations. A guest debate is the more apt term, and they have only a few hours between classes to meet with me. I barely look up as I bound across the campus, only lifting my head when I reach the School of Public Health. The red brick building looks like a Victorian mansion, coated in vines and topped with a series of pointed roofs with patterned shingles. It looks like the home of some mad scientist in an old movie. All that's missing is the thunder. Taking a deep breath, I push through the double doors and into the building. A blonde woman and an olive-skinned man are chatting in the foyer. They both appear older, too old to be undergrads, and they're both wearing lab coats. When I approach, both heads look my way. Dr. O'Connell, the woman says, 
She lifts her eyebrows and smiles broadly. Her arms are hovering in front of her chest, ready to extend a handshake or make a retreat based on my answer. Yes, that's me, I say, pulling the lapels of my coat. Oh, wonderful. She reaches for my hand and shakes it, placing her left hand on top of mine and grasping it tight. I'm Dr. Roussel, so pleased to meet you. Her voice is melodic, her French accent delicate and intriguing, but there is a hint of weariness in every word. This is my colleague, Dr. Giovanni Cancio. The olive-skinned man steps forward and shakes my hand, muttering a gruff piacere di conoscerti. Dr. Cancio and I are both big fans of your work here in the States. Oh, I say, waving them off. It's really nothing. I'm just doing my best to spread awareness, change the conversation. I mean, there was a time when measles was eradicated in this country, you know? But now, some 67% of families don't vaccinate. It's a travesty. Absolutely, Roussel says. Travesty, that is certainly the right word. In France, we have so many parents who simply won't listen. And Dr. Cancio's country, Italy, it's just... She clicks her tongue and shakes her head. Let's just hope that you can help us change things. She throws her hair over her shoulder and says something in Italian to Cancio. He nods, then opens the door to the first lab on our right. Roussel turns to me, her eyes sparkling. Shall we? Inside the lab, there are rows of little glass discs, lined up end to end across a long gray countertop. Each disc is filled with a unique pattern. Orange blossoms on a red background, zigzagging yellow stripes against deep blue, a winding brown river in a small swatch of orange. Petri dishes, at least 30 of them, looking like an art gallery for the truly sick. I examine them slowly, walking down the length of the counter. Examining some cultures, I ask. At first, yes. Roussel is close behind me, pointing out specific pieces in her collection. This one here is rubella. This one's whooping cough. This one's influenza. When we reach the last dish, she hums under her breath. But this one is truly special. It's why we're here today. I pick up the dish and hold it to the light. The agar solution is a pale green, but it's hardly visible under the activity blooming across its surface. All manner of microbes coat the dish, from sickly yellow sunbursts to graying slashes like tiger stripes. Purple pill-shaped microbes circled the rim twice like a coiling snake. Whoa, I say. You've got a lot going on in this dish. How many cultures did you put on here? Roussel takes the dish from my hand with a smirk. Just one. One. I lean over the dish again, squinting at the array of bacteria. How is that possible? That's what we're here to talk about. She gestures toward three chairs at the end of the counter. Take a seat. As I settle into my chair, Cancio grabs the seat to my right. Roussel remains standing, eyeing us like we're students she's about to lecture. Dr. O'Connell, she begins, did you know that when the polio vaccine was first made available, People lined up around the block to get it. I did, actually, I say. I've seen some old photographs. Pretty remarkable stuff. Yes, it was. There's that weariness again. Do you know why people were so willing to get a new vaccine? One they barely knew anything about? Her eyes bore into mine as I form my answer. I suppose they felt that the potential risks of the vaccine were better than the alternative. Yes, exactly. Roussel is excited now, slapping the countertop with every word. They knew it was better than the alternative. They knew that any medication, any risk, 
would have to be a better choice than their children in an iron lung. And at the core, their motivation was driven by one thing. Fear. Cancio's first word of the lecture is a somber one. His voice tumbles into the room like rolling thunder, making Roussel and I tense up until even its echoes dissipate. Dr. Cancio is right, Roussel says. Fear. Then people knew to be afraid of disease, of Mother Nature. Her wrath took too many young lives for them not to fear her. She paces the room as she talks, making wider loops with each pass. These days, bah! We can treat so many diseases, we can save so many lives, that we've forgotten to live in fear of what these little things can do. I furrow my brow. Isn't that good? Our ability to treat diseases is preventing the death tolls from reaching pandemic levels. Ah, but wouldn't it be better to prevent the diseases altogether? Rissell stops pacing and leans forward. From my seat, she looks unnaturally tall. Wouldn't it be better if the public knew what risks they are really taking? Well, sure, but... Before I can say another word, Cancio slides the green petri dish in front of me again. I look down into the sea of bacteria, the sickly colors and grotesque shapes, and feel more than a little fear. For the past ten years, Dr. Cancio and I have been leading a team of pediatricians and epidemiologists from around the world. Australia, China, Italy, France, Norway, Sweden, Brazil. We've all worked in cooperation to isolate the elements of every major preventable disease. We've torn them down into individual building blocks, then reconstructed them into this. She reaches for the petri dish and runs her fingers along the glass rim, gazing at it with a kind of motherly affection. This, I say, pulling the dish away from Roussel. This is... We're calling it Rukan's disease, she smiles. Rukan's, Cancio chimes in. He points first to Roussel, then to himself. Ru, can, you see? Uh-huh, I say. So what is this? A super virus? Roussel nods. Highly contagious, incredibly dangerous, at least to the unvaccinated. In vaccinated individuals, it's merely a sniffle, lasts just long enough for the virus to spread. But in the unvaccinated, her eyes get wide as she considers the symptoms. It's essentially the worst symptoms of nearly every preventable illness. Jesus, I whisper. Why would you want to create something like this? We haven't gotten to the good part, Roussel says with a pat on my arm. We've developed a vaccine, of course. We don't want to wreak havoc on the planet. She laughs lightly and flips her hair, but it doesn't feel charming anymore. Our vaccine will not only protect an individual from Rukans, but every other disease with a similar atomic makeup. With this one vaccine, we could eradicate every preventable illness all over again. You see, Cancio says. He pushes the dish even closer to me. I scoot back in my chair. Is good for us all. I look into Cancio's eyes, then Roussel's. They're both wearing the same expression, excitement, self-satisfaction, and delirious optimism. I feel my stomach sink like a lead weight. To think that my hope for a new world, for Clara, once rested with these lunatics. Let me see if I understand. I start slowly. You want to release this disease. Rukans, Cancio says. Sure. You want to release Rukan's disease out into the wild, infect millions of people, probably kill hundreds of thousands. Then, once the public is properly fearful, I shudder, 
dreading to question how much fear these two think is proper, you'll announce a vaccine, which has the potential to protect against all diseases in one shot. Yes, ah, thank goodness. Roussel leans her elbows on the counter, pushing aside two petri dishes. You understand our mission. Well, it sounds like you have everything in place. What do you need me for? Both the scientists stiffen. They cast nervous glances back and forth. Eventually, it's Cancio who speaks. Here, in U.S., he says, there are very few doctors outside of VFO homes. But you, Dr. O'Connell, you, um, how you say? You have a child in the public schools. The words fall from Roussel's mouth and hang in the air like a bad smell. I rise from my chair on wobbling legs. You... You want me to turn my daughter into patient zero? Roussel nods. She's vaccinated. It will hardly affect her. My eyes feel poised to pop out of their sockets. You want me to use my child to end the lives of thousands? Your child will be instrumental in protecting future generations. She'll be the savior of humanity. You're insane. Both of you. What you're talking about is genocide. Of the willfully ignorant, Roussel crosses her arms, for the survival of the planet. Gaining my balance, I push past her, upturning a few petri dishes in my wake. Not a chance, I yell over my shoulder. Not a goddamn chance. By the time I reach the parking lot, my nerves get the better of me, and I vomit into a nearby trash can. I lean against my car door, sputtering and shaking my head. Not a chance. Not a fucking chance. How could a team of scientists, of doctors, of my colleagues ever dream of such colossal destruction? It's the antithesis of everything we represent, everything we stand for, the oath we take when... I don't know if I will be able to encourage vaccinations in my own practice. I look around the corner and see two young men approaching the campus. One is dressed in a red polo shirt, the other a gray Boston UT. They look young, weedy, and small with that bright-eyed, ambitious glow that marks all first-year med students. I have to agree, the polo shirt says. It's right there in the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm. And based on the research I've seen, you just can't in good conscience say that vaccines aren't harmful for society. Absolutely, Boston UT shirt is talking with his hands as they round the corner. Sure, they used to be vital medicine in our grandparents' day, but they also used to bleed people with leeches and... Their voices disappear into the hum of other students. I watch them walk toward the School of Public Health, watch them become smaller and smaller, and take a breath. I want to vomit again, but I don't. Instead, I reach into my car, pull Clara's bear from the back seat, and follow them. Good morning, Clara! Miss Forrester skips toward us in a teal dress adorned with small rabbits in gardening attire. Did you have a nice weekend? Clara nods but doesn't let go of my hands. Billy is nested in the crook of her arm, and when the woman leans closer, she clutches the bear tightly to her chest. Oh, don't worry, silly. The teacher reaches out and musses her hair playfully. We won't touch your bear unless you say it's okay. Promise? She extends a pinky before Clara's eyes, a peace offering. Clara sniffles loudly, then looks up at me. It's all right, honey, I say. You'll be fine. Clara smiles then wraps her pinky around Ms. Forster's. That's what I'm talking about, the teacher says as my daughter sprints past her into a sea of children. We both watch her go, 
then turned to each other sheepishly. Mr. O'Connell, about the other day, I was out of line. So was I. I didn't need to swear at you. Inappropriate. No, I totally get it. It wasn't my place to judge. Look, I say, let's just let it go. All that matters is the kids, right? Exactly, the kids. As she turns to watch her students at play, I start down the hall. I've almost turned the corner when... Mr. O'Connell? I freeze. Yes? That runny nose Clara's got. It's not anything serious, right? I turn around and look straight into Ms. Forster's expectant eyes. Nothing to worry about, I say. Merely a sniffle. Chantelle Donnan is a writer and musical theater nerd from Southern California. She spent her childhood writing short stories in her journals and these days writes blogs for Wedding Bee and many other websites. Currently, she lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband, where she spends her time hiking, writing, and making her way through a massive to-read list. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.